The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Rob Cox, editor of Reuters Breaking Views. When I first moved to Zurich at the start of the year, one of the first folks I reached out to was James Briding. James had written a book called Swiss Made, the untold story behind Switzerland's success. As a newcomer to the country, I wanted to get his views on who I needed to know. But it's his latest book, Too Small to Fail, Why Some Small Nations Outperform Larger Ones and How They're Reshaping the World, that we discussed on today's exchange. In it, James examines why countries like Switzerland, Denmark, Israel, Sweden, Finland, Singapore, and Ireland are able to do a better job than most of the really big ones in providing for their people. In everything from economics and happiness to education and healthcare, these small nations do a better job by a variety of measures than some rich nations like the US, UK, and France. Given the spread of the coronavirus and the way different countries are responding, both from a public health and economic perspective, I figured James would have some insight into our current global predicament. So give it a listen. James, lovely to chat with you today here in Zurich. Normally we would get together, and uh, but because of social distancing measures that the Swiss government has put into force, you and I are speaking by Zoom. Thank you for having me, Rob. So I thought it would be great to talk to you about, um, you know, you have this book that you've come up with or, or put, put out called Too Small to Fail, Why Some Small Nations Outperform Larger Ones and How They Are Reshaping the World. And I thought given the, the coronavirus crisis, um, it would be worth kind of taking a little bit of a trip around these, um, these too small to fail nations and understanding a little bit how, how they're coping and whether there are strategies and, and things that we can learn from in the bigger countries, um, whether it's United States or uh, Italy or other places, and, and maybe sort of see how this too small to fail, as you call it, TSTF uh, group of nations is faring um, and, you know, what we should take away from that. Yeah, no, that's terrific. Let's let's do that. So, but first, let's establish who are we talking about when we who are the S eight as you call them? Yeah, so these are basically. I mean, the way I looked at it was a bit like a doctor looking at a patient and say the patient is a nation, and you know, you, you do blood tests and and EKGs and um, measure pulse and what have you. And, and so I looked at metrics like disposable incomes and Gini coefficients and. CO2 emissions and, and PISA scores and, and the, a pattern formed around sort of a, a cluster of small countries that have just done extraordinarily well across all gamuts of society. And um, these include countries like Singapore, Switzerland, Denmark, Netherlands, Sweden, Finland, um, Israel, Ireland, etc. So it, it, that, that was a bit the, the genesis of the, of the exercise. So who are the eight? Let's just go through them. Yeah, so Singapore, uh, Switzerland, yep. uh, Netherlands, uh, Denmark, Finland, Sweden, Israel, and Ireland. Right, right, right. And, and um, they all have certain shared characteristics. I mean, I've read your book. Uh, maybe it's worth sort of going through some of those before we get into sort of the specifics and the nitty gritty of how they're handling the crisis. Yeah. No, so, I mean, so some of them are fairly intuitive. They're, um, you know, they're very open sort of outward trading oriented type countries. And if you, if you think about 
you know, what's really important about disposable income, which is a society's ability to generate wealth. I mean, you really have to export. I mean, is exports are really the best way to generate wealth relative to competitors and, you know, just grocery stores and domestic supermarkets and things that, that doesn't really get it. But if you're, you know, if you're a company like Kone in Finland or Unilever in, in, in the Netherlands or Novartis, Nestle, Roche in Switzerland, that's, that's what's really important in terms of generating disproportionate ability to create wealth. So, you know, this, this sort of outward openness for trade, very high degree of um, exports as a percentage of um, GDP, a high degree of um, manufacturing as a percentage of GDP. So that's one characteristic. And then from that, because you know, because they're very much driven, um, sort of product driven as opposed to service driven, there's a high degree and high focus on innovation. Um, it's much easier to do innovations around hearing aids or pharmaceuticals than it is around um, you know, completing tax returns by you know um, or you know call centers and service type types of businesses. Um, so that's a second feature, uh, very good education systems, uh, particularly the public school education systems are very strong. Uh, the other thing that they have, which is stands out is that they're, um, they have very good social contracts. So social contracts in terms of healthcare insurance, in terms of pension funds, in terms of public school education uh, opportunities. So let's sort of stop there for a second on social contracts. I mean, I, there's a social contract suggests there's a contract, of course, between people and the government and the people. So as you mentioned, sort of say social safety nets, healthcare, things like that. Is there also a sort of contract that the people then behave in a certain way? And I, and I ask this in the context, of course, of coronavirus, where, yeah. um, you know, there is this question of uh, everyone's discussing the, the limits of freedom, effectively. Um, in Western democracies. I mean, is there, what is your sense of like the way these countries, you know, these S8 countries are coping with this issue with regards to the social contract and the and behavior of people? Yeah. So I think another, another aspect that they're really strong at is social cohesion and, and trust. They, they have a, they have much higher degrees of, of both of those features. So they have a sort of high trust societies and and, and, I, and because of that, they, much more behavior is regu regulated by social norms and, and less behavior is regulated by, by regulations. So, you know, if you think about a regulation, it's, it's a way of forcing people to do something, kind of a coercion. Uh, if most of your society is regulated by social norms and people are behaving in a voluntary way, but circumscri cir circumscribed based on what's acceptable behavior and what's not acceptable behavior. Uh, th that system seems to work quite well if you have a, a relatively low degrees of inequality. If you have an incredibly high degree of inequality, you have these kind of fissions in society, which in pressure points, which makes it, makes it very difficult for societies to be cohesive. Um, and so, yes, these, these smaller nations, uh, one, they tend to be a little bit more homogeneous. Um, it depends on the country. Um, and, and two, they, they tend to regulate a lot more of their behavior based on social norms. So, so yeah, they do, um, they are willing to sort of, they tend to emphasize the community more as opposed to the individual. And how are you seeing, I mean, you're, you're in, here in Zurich as am I, I mean, how are you seeing that play? I mean, this use Switzerland as an example. Um, you know, it does seem that you haven't 
they haven't imposed the sorts of uh, more draconian measures around movement here, for instance, that they have in uh, in Paris. But that seems to that seems to it, there seems to be this recognition though that the people will will not congregate. Uh, you know, Paris, you can't you can barely leave your house here. Doesn't seem to be the issue. No. So I, th I think um, what was really important for to react to this, uh, to respond to this crisis, was nipping it at the bud. So I think the, you know, each if you have this exponential progression where you know the the virus doubles in terms of infection rate every four or five days, it's really important to to react quickly and decisively, and to have kind of unequivocal information. So if you have a situation where there's lots of different opinions. There's political agendas. You know, people are not quite trusting other people. They're coming up with conspiracy theories. There might be fake news. You know, pe people tend to be sort of gaming the whole system, as we saw, for example, with Trump in the U.S. Um, you know, that is sort of the worst of all possibilities. And 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 I think what's what, what you do find in these countries is that they're they place a lot more credence and, and sort of evidence-based evidence information, scientific-based information. I remember here, a colleague of mine who's a, who's, who's a very famous neuroscientist and specialist in prions, which is a form of infection, infectious diseases. You know, he participated on a weekend, you know, 10 experts went together and they, they met on a weekend in Bern. Uh, to discuss this thing very early on. And, and, you know, this type of thing happens in small countries, also in part because you have very narrow degrees of separation. So, you know, people know each other and you're, you're one or two phone calls away from mm. just about anyone. So I think those things, you know, do allow you to move more quickly, uh, more agilely, um, which, which particularly when, when time is a premium uh, is, is important. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so let's think about this. So in general, if you think of some of the characteristics of the, of the too small to fail eight, um, you know, one of, you know, so there's the social contract and there's, and that, there's that, um, there's also, as you say, the, the important the healthcare systems um, are up to, are up to the task to agree. Are we seeing that play out? I mean, if you go and look at these, at the, you know, Denmark or Singapore, what are you seeing right now in the way that this is playing out? With the coronavirus response, yeah. Well, I, I, so there's a couple things about these countries that, that are not very intuitive. So you know, one is that they're vulnerable, um, and you know, it, particularly countries like say Singapore, which had the SARS. Uh, but in general, smaller countries feel more more vulnerable, and there's there's a there's a lower level of arrogance about these countries. The people tend to be much more modest. So. If you look at how the, the UK reacted and how the US reacted, there's, you, you kind of get the sense there's a certain feeling of superiority that people are above these things and that you know, we're, just, we're actually quite strong, we can get by, et cetera. And, and I think it's, it's, it's nice for the, one of the advantages of these small countries is that by being vulnerable, you, 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 know, you, you can actually get things done and, and, and react in a, in a much more with a higher degree of humility. If you're dealing with things like viruses and epidemics, you know, you, you want humility, you don't want arrogance. So I think that's, that's something that, that comes across in these countries. In terms of the healthcare uh, systems, which as you, as you point out is a really important feature, 
um, all these countries have inclusive healthcare uh, systems. So that this idea that you know 30 million people are not insured or certain people are insured with A or B, everyone has a has a uniform basic healthcare coverage. And in the case of, say, Singapore, for example, they immediately waived the deductible, so there was no quibbling about uh, who's going to pay for a test or a diagnosis. So, you know, right from the get-go, there was no no one felt precluded or or inhibited from getting tested. Um, so I think yes, that, that that's kind of that's a really important thing to have uh, if you're dealing with something like a pandemic. Yeah, Singapore is interesting. I mean. Your, uh, your chapter in the book uh, on Singapore is dedicated to, to its healthcare system. And um, there were some surprising things that pop out of that, like the, um, like the outcomes relative to the, the amount of money that's spent relative to, let's say, the United States or other nations. Yeah, well, I think Singapore is, what's interesting about Singapore is that they, they have, as you say, they, they've achieved superior outcomes with about, at about one quarter of the cost of, say, America and about 40% uh, of the cost of the UK. And by outcomes, you're talking about, like, you know, how many children die at birth and, and what are the... Yeah, the, the standard things that we look that, at, mortality yeah. rates and things like that. Exactly, you know, um, and, and, and I think they've done that because they've really understood what, what makes these healthcare systems tick. And, you know, the problem with the single payer models, which you have in say Canada or the UK is that you, you know, since everyone knows they're insured, there's, there's kind of an unlimited appetite for going to the doctor or, or everyone kind of knows they're insured for everything. And in the case of say fee for service based models, which you have in the, in the U S there's a huge incentive by the providers, whether they're doctors, whether they're hospitals, to game the system and to, you know, kind of gorge patients, if you like, to sort of oversubscribe. Too many. Well, it's sort of rent-seeking, I think, is how you describe yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Which we would, would, would Angus Deaton has been very vocal about the Nobel laureate. So, you know, the Singapore, they, they first started with the, the British system. Um, which was a single payer model, and, they, and Lee Kuan Yew realized it wasn't working. And then he shifted over to the American system, and that wasn't working. And so they just kind of groped their way through it, but they came up with this system, which is really, you know, really interesting because they have, they've sort of decoupled um, healthcare services. On the one hand, you have either very low frequency but very high cost incidents like. Um, you know, contracting diabetes, for example, or other chronic diseases, which can be lifelong ailments, and they're very expensive, um, and but they're they're relatively infrequent. And, and for those type of things, they have a very low cost insurance plan, and and more or less treating it like they would treat uh, the, the possibility of your house burning in your neighborhood. You know, you, it's a cost sharing, risk sharing type model where in any neighborhood of two thousand homes, maybe you might have one per year which catches on fire. And then the bulk of services are kind of ears, eyes, nose, and throat type things. And there they've developed a, something called the MediSafe plan. And that's basically kind of like a second social security system where every month, um, you know, people deduct, uh, they have to, they, they, they actually pay into a savings plan and it's matched by their employer. And there, the basic thinking is that you know, eighty percent of your healthcare costs are spent the last five years of your life. So mathematically, it's very similar to a pension. 
And there the key is to start saving money. So you have this separate bank account and each month they, they see how much money goes into it. And that's a currency that they can use, but they can only use it for healthcare services. And it builds up over time. And, if, and, and there's incentives to, 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 to actually save because if you die, it goes to your spouse or your children, or you can use it for collectively for family to, to encourage sort of community or, or family type responsibility for, for healthcare. And then finally, if, if, you, if you're well funded, it goes into your pension fund. So um, people have it just, a, it, it basically gives uh, consumers in Singapore skin in the game. So when they, when they go to the doctor, they ask the doctor, hey, do you have, do you have a generic drug available? Or, or do, do I, can I get a second opinion on this operation? Or how much does this hip tra transplant cost compared to other places? And right. they have a, a pretty sophisticated system for posting pricing and uh, where, the, where there's a, a high degree of transparency. And of course they negotiate drugs as they do with um, NICE in the UK where they, you know, this ridiculous situation you have in the US where pharmaceuticals can, can effectively charge whatever price they want for drugs is, is, is pretty, yeah. they have this. this. So it, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a fantastic system. And, and yeah, and, and I think that uh, that is, particularly when you have these pandemics, it's great to have something like that. Yeah, that means that, so Singapore is being widely lauded as, as sort of people looking at it as an example in this crisis. I, some other people, I mean, there's other examples, Sweden, which is another one of your countries, um, certainly has taken a different tack from some of the other countries in, in, in Europe, um, with a, seems to be established, trying to establish a herd immunity. And Denmark, by the way, also early on had a different, completely different approach. Yeah. So yeah, and, and look, I mean, there's there's disagreement amongst the, the experts, as you point out, you know, to, to what extent the suppression method will be effective versus the versus the herd immunity approach. And, and you, as you say, you know, Sweden has chosen the the herd immunity approach, and and it just remains to be seen which which policy choice was the right one. I suppose you know one of the the benefits of small is that you can get things done, do these things more flexibly than you can if you're a, you know, a nation of 320 million, uh, like the United States. Yeah, no, I think that's right. One of the things, I mean, just sort of thinking about, uh, you know, one of the too small to fail concept. And, and it's funny, I talked to people and, you know, have gone to Denmark and written a column and then sort of said, hey, the, you know, Danish capitalism is nothing like what, you know, the uh, Trump White House would suggest is some sort of Marxist-based economic model, um, or you and you can see that across you know across the, the small sort of small nations, not not just the eight New Zealand, the way they've been responding to the crisis and other issues like firearms control, things like that. I guess the, the thing that I the pushback I always get, James, and you you're an American too, so you probably get this too, which is you know people say, oh well, that's fine if you're a small nation, we're too big, you can't do that here. What do you say to that that sort of response well you know the first chapter of the book is called the fallacy of scale and I, and I think I think we have a misunderstanding about size and applicability of things like economies of scale I, I think you know with a country of six million people mathematically that's a lot of data points and if you can get it right for six million people I don't see why you can't get it right for the state of California or the state of Texas um, so I, I actually think People, people dismiss this the, the effectiveness of these these successful policies. 
maybe because of political expedience because of that. But I, I, I think that there, it's certainly worth trying. And if you think back of the founding fathers, you know, James Madison, Hamilton, etc. Yeah, it was it was really meant to be a very decentralized country, um, where where you know quite autonomously these 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 states could could do these types of things. So, yeah, no, I think there's a and maybe this crisis will push us to 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 experiment to try and see, you know, could we not try what they're doing? And for example, what Denmark's doing now with what they call flex security, which is you know kind of a fascinating concept, which may be just exactly the sort of thing. Yeah, how does that work? What was your, how do you? Well, you know, if, if, you, if you take the view, which is now coming up recently, as you, as you know, we talked about that um, earlier, that, you know, it looks as though it's going to be start and stop type of thing, right? Mm-hmm. This, you know, this idea of a, a V-shaped recovery um, is probably un, unrealistic. So we, we might have a situation where we, you know, we have this pandemic, we then control it, and then it comes back and rears its ugly head. And, and that continues, say, in a cycle of five or six times until we have a vaccine. And then, because I, I, either you have to have this vaccine or you have to have immunity. So we may have this sort of staircase approach. And, and in that case, what, what Denmark has, which I think is, is kind of neat, I mean, they basically treat the individual, uh, they, they actually look at the, at the person as opposed to the job. So this idea of just unemployment insurance where, Okay, you have to have this job, and then you have this this unemployment insurance scheme. So it's actually the in, it's it's the individual who's insured, not the job which is insured. And 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 what that means is that companies can easily fire or hire people in Denmark. So companies like Nova Nordisk or AP Merlin Maersk, they have a very fluid, flexible employee base. They and there's no stigma attached with firing people or getting rid of people, people leave jobs and, and return to jobs. So there's a lot more uh, fluidity between employers and employees, knowing that if you leave this job, you have this ability to, to get paid by the state for a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can use that period, for example, to, to retrain and take courses. You can use that period to maybe take a, a six month uh, vacation with your daughter or your son or a new child. Etc. So uh, they, they they seem to have this um, method of uh, collaborating between workers and, and companies, between capital and, and labor, which is which is quite uh, quite advanced compared to other societies. Now, particularly in a moment like now, where we might have a really sporadic recovery and where there's lots of interruptions and there's fits, you know, kind of things are starting and stopping, pushing pause, replay button, that type of system. Probably, if you had to design something, you know, makes a lot of sense, uh, as opposed to the, the friction involved with getting rid of employees, laying them off, you know, trying to find them again, retrain them, uh, which is the sort of situation we're going to be confronted with going. Right. Uh, so yeah, so I, I think it's you know, uh, I was just speaking to Fleming Larson, who's an expert from um, from Denmark. Uh, and you know, this is—I think this might shed some light onto that type of system. As we mentioned, the Singaporean healthcare system. You know, maybe this crisis will, will bring attention to these types of models and, and get people to study them and debate them and consider whether, you know, some there, there are some advantages and, and something could be replicated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just to get before we, before we end, I want to ask you—you know—the conclude the sort of the end of your book. You talk about 
why nations in the future will be smaller or nimbler, smaller, more co cohesive. It's kind of a prediction, if you will. And I just wonder if, you know, uh, if you go back to this question, if, you, if, you, if the response to by big nations and big federal governments as well, you know, we can't really do that here because, you know, where, you know, that only works on a small scale. Wouldn't you then just say, and particularly as a result of the, the different and perhaps more effective responses we've seen either in the public health arena or in the response to the economic crisis we've just discussed with Singapore and Denmark, isn't it possible to say, you know what, actually maybe a country like the United States is actually too big. So when I think of um, too, too small to fail, um, you know, I think the, the opposite of too big to fail, one of the responses was, well, actually we break things up break them into smaller, yeah. more manageable. Why wouldn't we now as a result of this go, hmm, maybe countries like the United States actually are, are too big. Maybe, maybe, or even the European Union doesn't work as a construct. Maybe we really need to go back to smaller nation states or even secession, which is you know, potentially a way to think about it in the United States. Yeah, so I, well, I, you know, I think those, Clearly, that's a possibility. I think there's a there's a long way to get there. I, I think before we get to that discussion, I think the key debate is is this is to get away from the sort of sclerotic notion that you know either the left is it's the left or the right. You know, either we have too much government and government messes up everything, therefore they you know we should have no government. Or the people on the other side say, well, every time you have free markets and they're, they're too free, they they end up causing these great financial crises. So therefore we should regulate. And, and it seems to be a binary discussion, kind of a zero sum game. And I, I think what these countries teach you is that there's a kind of a new order out there, which is kind of begging to be heard, which is, you know, we can have more markets, we just need better government. And, 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 and that's a very different discussion It's a very political, very different political framing than the sort of current, you know, Tory versus Labour Party or, or Democratic versus Labor, Democratic versus Republican right. Party. I, I think you know that we really need to be thinking about. It. I think this this crisis will push us in that direction. I mean, who would have thought of having universal income, for example, mm. uh, three or four months ago? By the way, I'm pro business, just so you know. So I'm not uh, sure, um, but but I do think we're we're going to be sort of you know uh, lurching towards the left with this, whether we like it or not. But if you look at the Scandinavians, for example. You know, it's quite fascinating. It stretches the mind a bit, but uh, probably for you and me and for, for a lot of other people. But, you know, they kind of had this idea, hey, we can kind of outsource our education, our healthcare, and our pension system. Uh, and we have this trusted partner, partner called government. And then, you know, we, we then go on and do our entrepreneurial things, my business things, et cetera. So you have the biggest, you have the biggest density of unicorns on a per capita basis in Stockholm. That's, mm. that's a that's kind of a neat world. Right. And the same thing with, with, with Singapore. Singapore is an incredibly enterprising society, but it has a really good social contract. And, you know, the, I think the fact is we're, we're this crisis that we're, we're confronting ourselves with right now, there, it's not going to be the last one. You know, we have, I mean, 100-year lives are no longer a, a mathematical possibility. They're a likelihood. And, and you can imagine the pressure this is going to put on things like, pension systems and healthcare, yeah. um, you know, if, you, if you, you, you see issues around gender where well-educated women, you know, the, the opportunity cost of having 2.1 children is just 
doesn't look that very, that attractive. So, you know, we're probably going to have more immigration going forward if that's the case. So, you know, this isn't going to be our last problem. And, and I think these societies teach us that, you know, having a model which is based on more free markets and, and, and better government, I think is, a, is kind of a, a healthier way of looking at things. And then getting to the size question that you, you mentioned, you know, I, I, I think as well, this, this idea of size, whether bigger or smaller, you can also sort of look at the advantage of decentralization versus centralization. And I, and I think, and I think the, the, that countries like the US and the UK, I, I think, you know, we may be going into a period where you're exploring the advantages of decent, more decentralized societies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you, if you think about, if you think about the historical sort of production, you know, you had the sort of vert vertical production systems where you had sort of mines in one part of the country and coal in another part of the country and, and steel and then you know, manufacturing and, and everything was very vertical integrated. But, you know, people now are competing on very narrow parts of the value chains with very small, much smaller units of, of manufacturing. Um, so the idea of having sort of big centralized units doesn't seem to have the merit it once had. So I, I think that we probably will move towards more decentralized societies. So the independent Republic of Connecticut, my home yeah, state. Yeah, I, I think it is the United States of America. And I think it goes, I think we may go back to more than the Madison, you know, sort of the, mm. what, you know, more less the Hamilton, more the Madison type model. And, and that type of thing needs to be discussed and debated before you decide whether you want to, uh, what, before Florida teams up with Cuba and Puerto Rico and creates its own country. So I, I think there's a couple iterations that we need to go through this, this new model of, of more, more markets and better government and then, you know, sort of ex experimenting with decentralization versus centralization. And if all that doesn't work, then yes, yeah. you know, probably does think, you know, one should think about, uh, you know, yeah, society yeah, yeah, yeah. goes into, into, into smaller fragments. Well, before we get there, we all need to... By the way, and you've had these debates with Quebec versus the English-speaking part right. of Canada, et cetera. So those, it's a live issue in Alberta, for instance, in Canada right now. Yeah. No, and I, and I think that... Uh, but I, I just would maybe caution that you should first go through those two other iterations before you get to that point. And, well, in the meantime, we've I, just got to pass through coronavirus and... Uh, <laughs> And, uh, and but you well, see, but you you know, you see countries like Liechtenstein. I just spoke over the weekend to uh, Prince Max von Liechtenstein. They have forty-one thousand people. It's 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 a perfectly well-functioning society, and they have their own yeah. school systems, their own healthcare systems, etc. So, you know, something does speak for um, for for. Uh, I'm not so sure, given where we are in, in kind of the modernity cycle, that that size is better. No, it doesn't seem to be giving an advantage. Well, look, James, um, on that note, thank you very much. Um, I look forward to actually seeing you uh, here in Zurich somewhere in person again, um, but stay healthy and uh, right. good luck with the- I, I think we're five kilometers apart, aren't we? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, thanks so much. Okay, Rob, take care of yourself. Thanks for your interest and thanks for the time. That's it for now. This podcast was produced by Freddie Joyner in New York. If you haven't already done so, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at Rob Wancox. Thanks for tuning in and a Vita Send.